Well, we are in a series on the Psalm of Ascents, which are the songs the people of God would sing together on their pilgrimages to Jerusalem for one of the three great feast days. And if you'll remember, these psalms assume a particular way of life that is defined by and really undergirded by discipleship and pilgrimage. And discipleship is not merely uh, the accumulation of information about God, as if discipleship is akin to trivia, and we're trying to get the right answer or really the right question right on Jeopardy. No, it's, it's learning to walk in God's ways like we are an apprentice to a master. So, for example, if you want to become a painter, you wouldn't just read a book about painting or watch a YouTube video about it and think, huh, there you go. No, you would pick up some art supplies and find a teacher and get after what the book or the video tells you to do. It's a not a skill that can be learned overnight, and like most of the fine arts, to be, a, to be masterful at, at painting requires good teachers and a community of artists to be around, and it takes years to learn how to, to become proficient at it. And even when you are very good, you never fully arrive at perfection. There's always something new to learn, something new to find out. Now, on the flip side of that, if you don't keep working at the skill, if you don't keep working at the habit or the practice, you will lose it. And that's exactly what happens to former athletes, and it's exactly what has happened to me with my music. Being in covenant with God is not merely about thinking right thoughts about God, though that is a good thing, and we should aspire to do that. I mean, God wants us to learn how to see and how to act as people in relationship to him. And it isn't merely getting the rituals of worship right or knowing the right words to say, though, again, those things are very important. It's being the sort of people who love the things that God loves, which means we are not merely a people in pursuit of virtue. So let me explain that for a moment. So it is possible to be virtuous in the sense that we tell the truth or are faithful to our spouses or don't cheat on our taxes or we give to the poor or we live a life of sobriety. But as Paul says, none of that means anything. None of that means anything without love. You can be virtuous without being godly. We don't want to be merely truth tellers. Plenty of non-Christians do that, and I'm actually thankful for them. No, we want to love as God loves. We want our hearts to be set on him. We aren't merely pursuing virtue. We are pursuing him. But we are also on a pilgrimage. We know that this life is not all there is, and that it is certain that one day soon, we will see God face to face. That means then that our life is actually heading somewhere. It has a trajectory. So life can feel pretty random at times, often even brutal, but God promises us that our lives are headed straight towards him, though we can't figure out the road ahead. If we were not on this pilgrimage, if we had no hope of seeing God face to face, then life would be, in fact, meaningless. It would be pointless. The short time that we have would be spent than trying to create whatever meaning or happiness or purpose or truth that we can. So, you know, believe in science, great. Believe in sports, or believe in activism, or believe in yourself. Do whatever you can to make this life the best life you can, because this life is all there is. That's why without God, you can pursue whatever you want. 
whatever you want. Earn whatever trophy you want, be the top of your game, prove your opponents wrong, whatever. But as Solomon puts it, it's all vapor. It's all vapor in the end. It won't matter after you've died and we will all die. And in 100 years, and probably not even half that amount of time, nobody cares. Nobody cares what you did. No, for us, we believe differently. We see the world differently. Our lives belong to another, not to ourselves. We want to walk in his ways, not our ways. And we trust him, not ourselves, especially when he says heaven is life spent with him. And we have that life now. Well, that's a lengthy introduction to say in its five short verses, Psalm 125 touches on all this stuff in one way or another. So let me read it for us. This is Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to Christ for that. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that this would be a good time of meditation and thinking through and working through your word. That again, as we started off this service saying that we might be shaped to it, that we might be in the habit of setting our lives to yours, which means this is a life of repentance, a life of turning back again daily to you, despite our sin, despite our failings, looking back to you and fighting to do that. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us in that, that we would love you most because you have set your love on us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on the psalm, used a term uh, I hadn't heard in a long time, backslider, backslider. A backslider is, is someone who was once walking the straight and narrow, but no longer is. And of course, backsliding is a real thing, but, but what people often have in mind is not so much apostasy, where someone just says, I don't want this God anymore, as it is a conception of Christian discipleship that's very much like walking on a tightrope. One false move and you are out of God's will, maybe for life. One mistake, one fell step, and God no longer has your back. Go to church or the devil will get you. I mean, think about it this way. Why doesn't that infamous sign say, go to church so that you might commune with God and his people? Or better yet, God can defend you and protect you. His steadfast love endures forever. Why not say that? Because the Bible actually repeatedly says that over and over again. That tired, misleading sign assumes that that Christian discipleship really is about how well you perform. And when discipleship is about how well you perform, that it is really all about you. And when it is all about you, God is not part of the picture. That's why many Christians, when they dream of heaven, They don't notice that in their daydreaming, God isn't there. That's why the sign emphasizes the devil. 
not Jesus. If you are more worried about burning than about sinning against God, then your concern is not with God at all. You know, though that sign thinks of itself as, as moral and godly, offering the world hope, it really is not that much different from Islam. It makes salvation something we do for ourselves. And this stuff is, is so deeply ingrained in our collective psyche that it's, it's easy to read this psalm from that perspective. But that's a mistake, and it, it misses just how gracious and good God actually is. So if you begin with verse 1, it says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now notice two things. First, the psalmist says, those who trust, just stop right there. Trust is just another word for faith, and faith is not unique to religion. Over the last 400 years, it's been argued that only religious people have faith. Truly enlightened people have knowledge or certainty, but that's false. Everyone trusts in something. I mean, everyone puts their faith in something. It could be other people, it could be yourself, it could be the brakes on your car, it could be scientists or politicians or, or whatever. And without a thought, we put our faith, our trust in countless things every day. Now, everyone ultimately ultimately puts their faith in something or someone. It's what we, we build our life around. It's what gives us our identity. It's what gives us meaning and hope and a feeling of, of being grounded. And most people are unaware that they even do this. And it's not until that thing or that person is taken away or called into question that it actually becomes apparent to them that something is wrong. So, for example, when I was in middle school and really into high school, I built my life around skateboarding. It was what I constantly thought about, constantly. I mean, during school, I drew pictures about it. I wanted to wear all the cool brands. I obsessively read every magazine I could get, uh, which was not much. And I would watch the same VHS tape over and over again. And it didn't matter what the weather was, snowing, raining, heat. I didn't care. I was out skating. So when I lost it, so when I lost skateboarding, it felt like the death of a loved one. And I clearly remember thinking, what am I supposed to do now? There's, there's nothing in life worth doing anymore. Is life even worth living that I don't have a skateboard? And I know this maybe sounds a little trite to some of you and, and that maybe as a teenager, I was being overly dramatic, but you just change the terms or change the object of affection, and I've seen and heard adults act the exact same way. You see, skateboarding was my God. It gave me hope and meaning and a reason to live, and I had built my life around it, and it defined every aspect of my being, and everybody does that. Skateboarding, the accumulation of wealth or pleasure, cultivating a life of comfort, ensuring my children have the best possible life, we can look to anything and everything to build our lives around. And the question that faces everyone is not whether or not they have faith. Everyone has faith. It's what we have placed our faith in. And whatever we have ultimately placed our faith in, and again, most people are unaware that they even do this. Whatever that thing is, that's our God. 
That's the thing we run to for comfort or, or security or for explanations or for hope. It's what feels comfortable and gives us a sense of, of place in the world. Well, second, building on all of that, the psalmist puts his trust in God. That's the object. That's his ultimate. The psalmist doesn't say, I've just got faith, y'all. He doesn't have a bumper sticker that says, just have faith, like, like many Americans maybe do. And as an aside, you know, when you hear people say, like, I just got to have faith. When you hear those kind of statements, you should immediately ask, faith in what? Faith is always aimed at something, and if a person can't name an object, you know, then probably what they really mean is faith in themselves or just some irrational hope that things will get better. That's not what's on view here at all. The psalmist trusts and his hope is in God, not himself or some kind of blind hope that things will get better because ultimately every life ends in death. He goes on to say that those who put their trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Now, if we stopped right there, we might be tempted to think that the psalmist is saying that this kind of person will be like a mountain in and of himself. But really, he's talking about God, who is the mountain. He continues by saying, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and, and forevermore. And so if you know anything about the geography of that, that place, uh, Jerusalem was, was on a mountain. That's why the temple was known as the Temple Mount. But even surrounding that even more uh, were, were mountains that served as a, a natural defense. And it's not the, the psalmist then who is the mountain. It's God. God's temple is on Zion, which means God's presence is there. And he has further surrounded his people with even more strong defensive mountains. So those who trust in the Lord are not a strength unto themselves. They are protected by God. He is their refuge and strength. So in other words, the psalmist can speak with confidence, not because he is actually confident in himself, but because of his God. So just think of David and Goliath. You know, David did not win because he was stronger or better prepared than Goliath. I mean, he's a teenager going against a beast, and no one thought David could win that battle, and rightly so, he couldn't. God won that battle, and David said as much. David, like the psalmist, boasted in his God because that's where his hope was. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They survived the fiery furnace not because they had fire-resistant skin, but because God protected them. They even said to Nebuchadnezzar, this is incredible that they would say this. Again, probably late teenage, early 20s boys, they say to one of the most powerful people in the world at that time, if not the most powerful, God will deliver us from this. But if he doesn't, that's fine. He's still with us. And because of that, we're still not going to do what you're asking us to do. They trusted both in life and in death that God was their only security. Or, or Paul, when he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When he says jars of clay, he means us. We are easily broken creatures that have no strength in ourselves, and yet the God who made the heavens and the earth has literally united himself to us, these little jars of clay, through his Son and the power of the Spirit. So everywhere you go, God is with you. You don't have to be in Jerusalem to know that God is your mountain and has surrounded you. This is where Christian discipleship 
begins. Not with our strength or our ability to, to, to keep the law or to flee from the devil. No, it begins with trust in God. But you might be thinking, now, wait a minute. I don't always feel like that. I don't know that I've, I've ever felt like that. Certainly not like David. I've never had his confidence or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego you know, facing down a literal fiery furnace. I'm not like Paul. I often try to boast in my strength and cover up my weaknesses. And you can probably think of moments in your life where you've doubted or fell apart or ran from God or were angry with God. Not many Christians like to admit to that, but there have been times in your life where you were angry with God or you simply just didn't care about him or really anybody else or anything else for that matter. So, so maybe, you know, if you're being honest with yourself, maybe right now you don't even think about God all that much right now, even though you think you probably should. And maybe there's the, the Sunday Christian version of you when you decide to make the effort to come, and then there's the real version of you, the other 111 hours of your waking week. But here's the thing. If God's promises were based on our feelings or how well we performed, he would never love us. If God's promises were based on how well we prayed or kept his laws, he'd revoke those promises immediately. You know, we we tend to either overvalue ourselves, thinking that we are far better than we really are, which means we usually discount just how serious our sin is, or we undervalue God's promises to us, seeing only our sin and shame and assuming it has voided those promises. Or maybe you alternate between doing both depending on which sin has come to light in your life. The psalmist isn't saying we won't be moved. He's saying God won't be moved. We aren't Mount Zion. God is. We don't conquer Goliath. God does. We don't overcome death. God does. And if you know the story of the Bible, you will know it is one long story about God being faithful to a people who continually fail to be faithful to him. It's like Psalm 78, verses 37 through 38, that that summarizes all of Scripture in two verses. It says, their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. Or as one Old Testament scholar put it, you can summarize the entire Old Testament with the word, nevertheless. As in, humanity rebelled against God and chose death. Nevertheless. God remained faithful and sought to redeem. To quote Eugene Peters again, he says, you know, the people of God are a sawtoothed people. Do you see that, that image in your head? One day we're walking victoriously through the Red Sea, you know, watching the greatest army in the world be destroyed. And the next day we're grumbling because the food doesn't meet our standards. One day we are in Jerusalem cheering Jesus as the son of David and Messiah. And the next day we're denying him at his trial and calling for his crucifixion. One day we feel like we're on a mountaintop of joy, feeling God's presence full in the face. And the next we feel like he has abandoned us or that, frankly, we don't care. One day we are fervently praying. The next day we don't bother to pray at all. Now, don't get me wrong. Our emotions are vitally important and we should feel things deeply. We should feel joy 
or happiness or pain or frustration or sadness or sorrow, especially when it is a beautiful moment or we see our children doing well or we've received a hard diagnosis or we've been sinned against or we've lost someone. I mean, Jesus wept far more and rejoiced far more and probably I would say had more gladness than any man I personally know. But our emotions, our emotions can just as easily be, well, like a check engine light, that something is actually wrong with us. I most often feel anger, frustration, annoyance, sadness, and sorrow when my pursuit of myself has been hindered in some way. When I'm not getting what I want, when I'm not able to do exactly as I want to do, right when I want to do it, that's when I feel anger and frustration and annoyance or even sadness. Woe is me. I can't play God today. And if you find joy or happiness or glee in things you know that God does not want for you, rejoicing in sin, that too is a check engine light that something has gone badly wrong with you. Even so, as, God, as good as it is to have emotions, and it is good, they can be a terrible barometer for our relationship with God and other people, especially when we feel like God is not with us. Don't put trust in your feelings about God or your feelings of how well you are walking with God or how well your life is going in general. I can tell you right now, you are not walking nearly as well as you should. That's everyone in this room. No, put your trust in his promises, no matter what you might be feeling in any particular moment. Because let's, let's be honest, there'll be moments where we're feeling really good about ourselves, really righteous about ourselves, and we shouldn't. You see, he's promised that he will never abandon us or forsaken us. He won't leave us when we sin, and he won't only love us when we do what's right, because he's not like that. He's, a st he's steadfast like a mountain. He's not like a bad parent who's waiting for you to make him proud. You know, it is only from a relationship of trust that you will really begin to walk in his ways and that your emotions, and it may take a long time, that your emotions will come to be shaped by those promises and not your circumstances. Start from anywhere else. Go to church and the devil will get you. Start there. And you know what? It will wind up being about you and your virtue. And that's an awful way to live. That said, the psalmist, like the Bible as a whole, is a realist. He's not writing these things from some fanciful, unrealistic, pain-free view of life. He knows just what pain and suffering are and how hard it is to trust God in the midst of it. When he says, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong, the psalmist is admitting that the world is a tough place to live in, you know, often a wicked and unjust place to live. And what he basically means is that the plans of the wicked to oppress the world, and the psalmist has in view his, his own land of Israel, but really you can extend this to the whole world, He's saying that wickedness won't win out forever. And because of that, you aren't reducing to fighting evil with evil. You know, lots of Christians in this country assume that that's what we must do. No, for the Christian, there is no 
the ends justify the means sort of strategy. To live like that is to live as if this life is all there is, and it is a pagan way of living. So just because things are going against you personally or against Christ's church, you don't have to fight fire with fire and act like the world. In fact, you must not. No, we are called to a life of godliness amongst the evil of the world, living as testimonies to the true light of this world. Now, the world may scoff. The world may make fun of you or tell you you're crazy for doing this. That's just par for the course. I mean, you may be isolated because of it or have to endure social weirdness because of it. So teenagers, for example, it, it is very difficult. It is very difficult to willingly accept that you might have a lonely few years because you are socially on the outs for not doing what everyone else is doing. Now, I know I'm an old man, but I'm enough around enough young people. And, and well, like when I was young, young people are not quite savvy enough to hide their sin all that well. Pretty easy to see, especially in the social media age. You know, we live in a community I mean, let's just be honest. We live in a community where people will live as if there is no God six days out of the week and then go to church and youth group on Sundays and think wearing a Christian T-shirt or a cross around your neck or going to a youth group retreat is all there is to it. You know, I, I know because I've seen the text chains. I've seen the media posts. You know, let me encourage you, young people. I know your life is hard. I think being a teenager now is so much harder than it was when I was your age. But it won't always be like this. Your God is worth the sacrifice. And adults, you know, the same thing applies to us too. It's very easy to be part of the superficial Christianese of this town. We all know what that looks like. We all know how bankrupt and ugly it is and how tempting it is to, to fall in step with it. No, it's, it's a beautiful thing to pursue faithfulness right here in Greenville, and I think it's actually hard. You know, there are times where it may feel like there is no hope or no purpose in keeping God's ways. It may feel like, and maybe it's true, that you are missing out on a lot of the fun. You're not taken seriously. Maybe you are passed over for opportunities. Your so-called friends don't include you very much anymore because you're the Debbie Downer who won't do what everybody else is doing. But it won't always be this way. People who are on a pilgrimage don't live for the moment. It's so hard not to live for the moment, but we must not live for the moment. People who are on a pilgrimage live by the promise that God is their mountain and he will make all things new and there is so much life to come. Now, God has been saying this from the beginning. He's been saying this from the beginning, but not everybody wants what God has to offer. In the final two verses, the psalmist mentions the good and the bad. The good are those who are upright in heart, and the bad are those who turn aside to their crooked ways. And the danger here is to interpret this again in terms of backsliding. And of course, there is something to that. That is, you know, the, the, the good are those who go to church, and the bad are those who fell off the wagon and the devil got them. Again, the difference between being good and bad does not come down to your personal morality. That's not what the psalmist means at all. The upright in heart are those who trust in God and his ways. They aren't perfect. They aren't without sin or doubts or struggles or pain. 
They are a sawtooth people, and they know it. And they have put their trust in God. It's why John says in 1 John that if we sin, he's assuming that we will, if we sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, and he is faithful and just to forgive. God knows you will sin. Otherwise, why would he have given the whole Levitical sacrificial system? Why would he have given his son? Why would John write these things? He knows you will sin. He knows you will make mistakes. And some of those make mistakes will be costly, but he still says, you are mine. I will protect you. I will give you life. Trust in me. Again, think of David. Think of David. It's not that he was perfect or even all that righteous. In today's society, he would have been locked up. It was that he turned back to his God over and over again. The bad are like the fools and scoffers in Proverbs who say there is no God, or who, like we often see in our own town, give lip service to God, but don't care a thing for him, living as if there is no God, and in turn pursue whatever they think will make them happy. You know, the comparison isn't between here an Israelite and a pagan, though an Israelite who doesn't trust God is actually no better than a pagan. No, these are ways of life among Israelites. So there are some who who come to church who put their trust in God, and there are some who come to church who don't, even as both claim to be Christian. And the difference is not a difference between who has less sin or who has kept the law better, it's not even a difference between who is more virtuous. The difference is where you put your trust. You can go to church, be very virtuous, and still ride with the devil. You know, I used to be really troubled by the fact that I knew non-Christians who were morally superior, more, you know, more virtuous than some Christians I know, especially when those Christians acted badly. And honestly, you know, I, I know many non-Christians who are far more compassionate, kind, and self-controlled than some Christians I know. Discipleship has never been about how well you perform, walking a tightrope of virtue. It has always been, it has always been about where you put your trust. So your life then, it doesn't flow from your virtue. It flows from where you have put your trust, that is, from your God. Discipleship is not about sinlessness. It's about repentance and turning back to God again and again. So those who are good, as the psalmist says, know just how much they need God. They know they are weak and frail. They know they are sinful. They know they can't get it right. They know and are saddened because they keep committing the same stupid sins over and over and they don't want it anymore. It's like what Paul Tripp recently commented. He said, yes, you are called to be faithful, but your hope doesn't rest on your faithfulness, but on the perfect faithfulness of your father. We are called to live self-controlled lives, but our security is not in our ability to control ourselves, but in the restraining and empowering grace of our Savior. And so it's worth worth taking the time to, to examine ourselves and ask, where have I actually put my trust? You know, especially as we're getting ready to partake in the, in the Lord's Supper, which is a sacrament that, by the way, demands self-examination. Don't ask yourself how well you are keeping the Ten Commandments. That's really important. You should pursue them, but I can tell you, you're not keeping them well enough. 
Rather, ask yourself, how much do I trust this God? Do I even act like I need him? Everyone treats something like a mountain. Everyone. But there's only one mountain that brings life, and those who trust in it, as the psalmist says at the end of our passage, will have his peace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. There's no God like you, a God who keeps covenant faithfulness generation after generation, a God who knows us more clearly than we know ourselves, who knows our insides and our outs, who knows that we are self-deluded and often lie about how good we actually are, and yet, nevertheless, atones for our iniquity. Thank you for this grace and mercy you have given to us. May we trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name.